Okay, last week we got into chapter 4, beginning with the second verse. We had been looking at verse 1, which is a type of the rapture of the church. John is raptured into heaven, into the throne room of God, and that is at the precise place in God's future plan when I believe the church will be raptured out prior to the tribulation period. We laid down a case for a pre-trib rapture, you know, throughout the Bible, um, supported not only by specific scriptures, but the way God has acted through the centuries, the types of, of raptured uh, saints uh, in, in, in other places. And we laid down a case for that. And then we moved into the latter portion of chapter 4 last week. I believe that on, in terms of eschatology, chapter 4 takes place in an undisclosed interval of time between the rapture of the church and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, which I believe is the seven-year tribulation period. So we're in an undisclosed period of time. I believe that during that period of time, we have the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ for believers, where they are judged on the basis of rewards. Daniel sees that vision of that judgment in the book of Daniel, he sees thrones being placed, but there's no one seated in those thrones. What John sees here in chapter 4 is thrones with people seated there. They have white raiment and crowns of gold, which the Bible defines elsewhere as rewards. And so Daniel sees the throne room before the judgment seat. John has seen it after the judgment seat when these 24 elders, which I believe represent the redeemed of all mankind, are seated around the throne having received their rewards. And we'll see later in chapter 5 that it's not just 24 representatives there in the throne room. It's countless thousands of the redeemed. And so we talked about the throne last week. It's not a throne of, ju- of grace. It's a throne of judgment. It looks very much like what Israel saw from Mount Sinai. Thunderings and lightnings and um, voices. God is preparing to judge the world. The church has been raptured out. We talked about um, the 24 elders, as I said, as representatives of the redeemed of all ages. Old Testament saints, the friends of the bridegroom, and the New Testament church, the bride herself. And I talked about the 24 orders of priests in the Old Testament and things the Bible says in Revelation about the New Jerusalem and how these elders are seated, the title given to them, their dress, their song. All these things point to the conclusion that these represent the redeemed of all mankind. And then finally last week, we talked a, a bit about these four beasts that are, are listed, are, are mentioned around the throne of God. And these beasts are living creatures. They're not beasts in the sense of wild, untamed animals like the beast mentioned in Revelation 13 that comes out of the sea, Antichrist, or the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. These are living creatures that surround the throne of God and they cry out concerning His holiness. Um, I I talked about how Ezekiel saw this same vision. He saw God's throne in in its mobility and saw these same creatures covered with eyes all over them. These creatures in heaven had eyes all over their bodies. Kind of a very strange uh, thought. And this shows their omniscient intelligence and their connection to God and His omniscience. And Ezekiel identified these creatures he saw as the cherubim, which is a type of angelic or heavenly being 
a cherubim, the cherubim are what guarded the, the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. Cherubim are what appeared on top of the Ark of the Covenant to cover the mercy seat. We saw how Solomon put them in the, in the, in the temple and they were engraved on the walls of the temple, on the tur- curtains of the tabernacle before that. How they were demonstrated or their, uh, their role as surrounding the throne of God was demonstrated in the camp of Israel which was encamped around the tabernacle and how the four tribes that represented the same, their standards included the same creatures mentioned on the faces of these beings were positioned around the tabernacle in the sense that these creatures were positioned around God's throne. And so we talked about the cherubim and then we went to Ezekiel 28 and where Satan himself is described prior to his fall. And Satan here in Ezekiel 28 is called the anointed cherub that covereth. I believe Satan was the chief of the cherubim. I don't believe he was an an archangel in in the sense of Gabriel or Michael, but he was a cherubim. He was an anointed cherub that dwelt in the presence of God. And these cherub, as God, as John sees, surround the throne of God, they support the throne of God, and they vindicate His holiness in the sense of being able to judge sin. God's holiness gives Him the authority to judge sin. And the cherubim, in their song and in their role, demonstrate that, or represent that. Satan was chief, the chief of the cherubim. And it said that he walked amidst the stones of fire. It says there in Ezekiel, and I believe those stones of fire are another type of heavenly being we're going to talk about here in a minute that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. But Satan was a cherub. He was like one of these anointed living creatures that John sees in Revelation 4, but he was beyond that. He was in the garden of God. He was in the presence of God. And just like the cherubim were to support the throne of God, so was Satan. But the problem is Satan desired to ascend above the throne of God and not to exist in support of it. And for that reason, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I find it very interesting that Satan is represented in the Scriptures or described as a serpent, a dragon, um, devil, the devil. These things connote a beast that's not submissive to God as described here in Revelation 4, but wild and untamed, just like the Antichrist, just like the false prophet. And when Daniel sees a picture of the Gentile kingdoms in in Daniel, I believe it's chapter 7, what God shows him are wild, untamed beasts that represent the Gentile kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue of gold and silver and brass and iron and clay. Man's perspective of, of, of world powers and kingdoms. God's perspective is wild, untamed beasts. And that represents the created order now as ruled by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. So Satan was an anointed cherub that fell. Okay? There are other heavenly or supernatural beings that the Scriptures mention, and I think it's only appropriate to discuss that briefly here because we're introduced in Revelation 4 to one uh, type of heavenly being, the cherubim. Let's look at some of the other heavenly beings that the Scriptures reveal to us. First of all, we have what are called angels. Okay, The word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. 
Sometimes that word is used in the New Testament to refer to a human being that is performing the function of a messenger. Okay? Um, that's why, you know, even Stephen was described as having the face of an angel. Okay? The angel at the church, the, to the churches in Revelation 2, I believe, are a reference to the human messengers, perhaps the pastors of those churches. So that word can be used to refer to human being. But I'm talking about angels in the, in the sense of heavenly beings. Uh, if someone would turn, Jason, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14? And uh, Bob, would you turn to uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 12? Hebrews, uh, the verse in Hebrews 1, Jason. Hebrews 1, Yes. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? This is talking about angels, comparing Jesus Christ to the angels. Hebrews 1 tells us that He's superior to the angels. Okay? He's superior to the prophets. But here angels are defined as ministering spirits. They're the ministering spirits of God. They're ministers. They're messengers, but they're also something else. First Peter 1 Peter 1.12 And to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now recorded unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So angels are ministers, but they are also watchers. They, like, they look into the things of salvation. They look into the affairs of men. They desire particularly God to look into God's redemption of bringing sinful men to Himself through Jesus Christ. In the book of Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision in which God is going to turn him into... To, he's going to cause him to become insane like a wild beast for seven years to debase him and show him that God rules in the kingdom of men and to humble him. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he confessed a saving knowledge of the Lord, of, of fa a saving faith in the Lord at the end of chapter 4, something that wasn't there quite yet in chapter 3 with Daniel's four friends and the, 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 the image. But there are, it is described in that dream that watchers came down from heaven. And these watchers are what humbled, stood by and watched as Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and had an active role in that event taking place. I believe these holy watchers are angels. They desire to look into the affairs of men. So angels are ministering spirits and they're watchers. They're watchers. Another type of heavenly being we see in the Scriptures can be found in Isaiah 6. This is a famous passage where the prophet, like Ezekiel, like John, is given a vision of God on His throne. It says in chapter 6 of Isaiah, "...in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face." And with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, 
For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. So, um, here we see the throne of God and Isaiah sees these creatures above the throne. The cherubim are below the throne. They support, they're around and amidst the throne. The seraphim were above the throne. That word seraphim in the Hebrew literally means burners or burning ones. It connotes fire. It says that Satan as an anointed cherub walked amongst the stones of fire. I believe this meant he had an authority position. Not only over the cherubim, but over the seraphim as well. This is a different type of heavenly being. They are above the throne. They have six wings. And they declare God's holiness as well. God's holiness has two aspects. His holiness gives Him the authority to judge sin, but it also gives Him the authority to cleanse sin. And so the cherubim would emphasize God's authority to judge sin in the, in the, presumptuous pride, in the face of man and his presumptuous pride. But the seraphim emphasize God's authority and ability to cleanse sin. Just as was done here with Isaiah the prophet in his humility. So God's holiness, we must not forget, has two aspects. Not only can He judge sin, but He can cleanse it based upon an interposed sacrifice which was prefigured in the Old Testament sacrifice system looking forward to Christ and which we see looking back on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these two types of heavenly beings emphasize different aspects of God's holiness. And they guard His throne and vindicate His holiness. So God is not unrighteous for judging sin, neither is He unrighteous for, for forgiving sin. You see, God can be just and yet the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus, as the book of Romans says. So we have the cherubim, the angels, the seraphim. We also have in the Bible what is called archangels. Okay, this is kind of an in, in, interesting subject. And that word archangel is only used twice in the New Testament. Turn to the book of Jude, just before Revelation. It only has one chapter. But in verse 7, not verse uh, 7, I'm sorry, it's verse 9. It's talking about how we need to be very careful about speaking presumptuously or flippantly to dignities, principalities, or powers. I believe the context here speaks against this flippancy we see in some churches about you know, talking to demons and I rebuke you Satan and all this foolish stuff that forgets the power and authority that's been given to Satan and his minions here on this earth. We shouldn't even speak flippantly of these beings because they're far more powerful than us. And without God and the guardianship of the Holy Spirit, we couldn't stand in their presence. 
Even Michael, it says, the archangel didn't argue with Satan over the body of Moses. I don't know what that means. I don't know if Satan desired to uh, reveal the location of Moses' body. It says God buried him and from that point on, Israel, of course, would have made that a shrine and probably worshipped Moses. I don't know if Satan desired to have Moses' body and possess it and raise it up and deceive the world. I don't know what the dispute here was. But Michael contended with Satan over the body of Moses. And even Michael, one of the most powerful of all the angels, who stood to represent the nation of Israel, it says in the book of Daniel, even Michael did not utter a hasty or railing accusation against Satan. Even Michael didn't say, I rebuke you. He says, the Lord rebuke you. I don't like this language or this lingo I hear from Christians. I rebuke that spirit. I rebuke you, Satan. I receive not that spirit. I rebuke you, devil. No. I think of the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts who were very flippant in the way they tried to cast out demons. And they went around flippantly commanding these demons to come out. In the name of, of this Jesus and this Paul, I tell you to come out. And that devil turned to them and said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And then that man who was possessed of those devils turned on those men and beat the snot out of them. Okay? Michael, even Michael the archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against Satan. We are fools to do that. Or to tamper with those things. Or to peep or to mutter. The greatest rebuke we can give to Satan is to resist him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And how do we resist him? The Lord rebuke you. The name Jesus rebuke you. The name of Christ, not us. We have nothing with which to rebuke Him, but God does. And so that's an example that Michael gives us, but Michael is called the archangel here, which connotes a chief amongst angels. Now, Michael is called the angel that stands for the people of Israel in the book of Daniel chapter 12. So I believe Michael's role as an archangel is specifically related to the nation of Israel. Now, that word archangel is also used in 1 Thessalonians 4 where the rapture is described. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talks about Christ coming in the air for His saints, not coming to the earth as described in the second coming, but coming to the air to retrieve His saints just as the bridegroom would come secretly and steal away His bride and take her off for seven days to the bride chamber on his father's property in the Jewish wedding. And Jesus uses that analogy in John chapter 14 about my father's house or many mansions. Christ comes for his church. And it says in verse 16 that for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. So that trumpet, that Gedea Tekola, the feast of trumpets, that trumpet, that trump of God, will somehow be in connection with the voice of the archangel. The identity of that archangel is not mentioned here. I believe that it's Gabriel. I believe Gabriel is another of the archangels. When you see his name mentioned in Scripture, he seems to possess the role of one who gives announcement of God's plans and God's program. He seems to call to announce. Gabriel appeared to Daniel several times in the book of Daniel. Chapter 8 and 9 specifically. He appeared to Mary to announce the incarnation of Christ. 
He appeared to Joseph, I believe, to announce uh, the incarnation of Christ. So Gabriel seems to be one who has a role centered around announcing God's program. And I, I think that's the reference being made here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Gabriel being one of the archangels. We know there's not only one archangel. We know there's more than one. How do we know this? Daniel chapter 10. Michael is called an archangel in the book of Jude. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, one of these angels came to assist Daniel, but he had been delayed in a battle with a fallen angel, the king of Persia. And this, this angel tells Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, plural, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So Michael, who's called an archangel in Jude, is called one of the chief princes here in Daniel 10. So that leads me to believe there's more than one archangel. I believe Gabriel would be one of those, and those are the only two named in Scripture. But Michael was but one of the chief princes, or chief among the angels of God. And so for that reason, there's more than one. I find it interesting that in the Apocrypha, which is not inspired Scripture, these were books that were written between the Old and New Testament periods during that 400-year intertestamental period. They're good to read because they kind of give you an idea of some of the historical things that were taking place in Israel during that time between Malachi and Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. It's not inspired literature. A lot of the things that Daniel prophesied would happen in history actually took place during that period. So there's some value in reading them, but Jesus never quoted them as inspired Scripture. And there are some things in there that contradict other portions of the Word of God. So it's not Scripture. Some people are very critical of the King James Bible translators because in the first edition of the King James printed in 1611, it included the Apocrypha. However, unlike the Catholic Bibles, the Apocrypha wasn't mixed in with the, New the Old Testament. It was put between the Testaments. And the King James translators in their introduction were very plain that this is not canonical Scripture. The reason we put it in here is for historic reference. And so they put it in there just like the Schofield Bible puts notes in the margin. The notes are not canonical. They're not inspired. They're put there for reference. But there was such a uh, um, uh, disdain for that literature which the Catholics believed is inspired that it was removed later, I believe in 1613. The King James translators never believed that was part of Scripture. And anybody that says that's mistaken. And the words of the translators themselves would show otherwise. But nevertheless, in the Apocrypha, in the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verse 15, there is an archangel mentioned by the name of Raphael, and he's called one of seven archangels. And so that's found in the Apocrypha. And then Jewish tradition mentions seven archangels. And so there would be Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and then there's four others mentioned in, according to Jewish rabbinical tradition. Uriel, Sariel, Raguel, and Jeremiel. So I don't know if that's... I mean, that's not Scripture, but I think it's interesting that the Scripture does say there's more than one of the chief princes. Okay? We know that Michael stands for the people of Israel. 
We know that Gabriel announces God's plans and programs. So that is a type of heavenly being that does exist. And we can surmise or speculate. Those things are fun to think about. But we need to be careful about getting off the plumb line of God's Word and delving into these other things that God has not chosen to reveal the details to us about. It's fun to look at history and Jewish tradition and things like that, but it doesn't make it authoritative or any more authoritative than the Scriptures. There seems to be this fascination nowadays with looking into these apocryphal books and these pseudopigraphal books that were not written by the names born on the title. A favorite among people is the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, these others that talk about Jesus having sexual relations with Mary Magdalene, and all of these things that clearly go against the testimony of Scriptures. Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas. That's a pseudepigraphal work that was written several centuries later. And the name of Thomas was put on it to deceive. Okay, People do that stuff all the time nowadays. Half of these so-called prophecies by Nostradamus were not written by him. They were, they were changed and tweaked and somebody's name was put on it. Look how many times people are accused of saying things, even in the newspaper today, that they never said. That they never said. I find it very interesting that a lot of these folks who have such a problem with any Christian person celebrating the birth of Christ in a biblical way around Christmas time, they, they like to quote a statement by Charles Spurgeon. And what I find hilarious is it's never quoted in context. Because the words that follow the statement that's usually cut off at a specific point talk about how Christians in faith can use that as an opportunity to emphasize Christ's incarnation and be a witness to the world. So they're making Spurgeon say something he didn't say. And so it's no fantasy that these books would suddenly creep up that claim to be written by these others. And I find how people love to delve into that stuff and get off the basis or the plumb line of God's Word and what we know to be authoritative Scripture because of Jesus' testimony and fulfilled prophecy. These things aren't in the apocryphal or pseudepigraphal works. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory comes from the Apocrypha, the Catholic doctrine of prayers for the dead, Mormon prayers for the dead, that stuff comes from the Apocrypha. Those were not scriptures that Jesus recognized as canonical, that, Jewish, that the Jews recognized as canonical. Uh, and the Catholics brought that stuff in and probably changed it along the way to try to justify some of the pagan traditions that came into the church. But nevertheless, I do think it's interesting that those names, that name is mentioned in the book of Tobit and as one of seven, and then Jewish tradition would also name other archangels. But only God knows the truth of all of those things. So we have angels, we have the seraphim, the archangels, in addition to the cherubim which are there in the throne room of God. Let's talk for a minute about other, some other supernatural beings. We also have what are called fallen angels, and we have demons. Okay, Satan, of course, is the prince of the powers of the air. Satan is the prince of the fallen angels. He's the prince of the demons. I do, not, I do not believe that fallen angels and demons are the same thing. I believe they're different. And I want to talk about that for a minute. I wouldn't stand dogmatically on some of these things, but I think the scriptural testimony provides a clear picture. First of all, we have fallen angels. Um, 
Nate, would you look up Jude verses 6 and 7? Daniel, 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Ronnie, Revelation 12 verse 4. And Jim, Daniel chapter 10 verses 13 and verse 20. Jude 6 and 7. Here we have angels that are accused of leaving their first estate. That word estate there refers to the position that they were given by God, the role. Just like a husband has an estate in the home, a role given to him by God. A wife has an estate in the home and in the church, a role given to her by God. Roles are different. None is more or less equal than the other, but we have different roles. Angels were given an estate. And it says here that there were angels which didn't keep that estate, but left their own habitation. And these angels are not walking around the earth right now. They're actually in chains in a place that's called Tartarus. It's a part of hell where they're kept in chains until the judgment of the last day. So these angels obviously did something very wicked. Okay, Now I find it interesting that verse 7 likens what the angels who left their first estate to what the men and people of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Likens it to that. It's a comparison or a simile. The angels left their first estate just like... Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, gave themselves over to fornication and went after strange flesh. And so somehow this leaving the first estate is likened unto sexual sin. Going after strange flesh. Homosexuality is a form of going after strange flesh. It's a form of leaving one's estate given to him by God. And it's a sin. And I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for that. It's a sin. It is perverted. God can save people from that, but it's a sin. And you don't live a lifestyle of sin and know Jesus Christ. It's impossible. A follower of Christ doesn't look at sin and say, I'm okay with it, God's okay with it. Because a follower of Christ has the Holy Spirit that convicts. Okay, so make no mistake. But that's a form of going after strange flesh. These fallen angels went after strange flesh in some way and are therefore reserved unto judgment. 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, being reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world. Okay, so here we have another reference to angels that sinned and were cast into hell and delivered into chains. So this is obviously a reference to the same angels Jude is talking about. Jude connected it with the sin of going after strange flesh. Here Peter connects it with the time of Noah. 
So I find that very interesting. So we have fallen angels which are angels that sinned and left their habitation or therefore in prison, in hell, in the earth. And I don't believe those angels are here today. That may be the spirits in prison that Jesus went to preach to when He descended into the earth during His period of burial. I'm not sure. That could be those spirits that walked the earth in the days of Noah that Jesus preached to through the preaching of Noah. That could be the reference there. Somebody read uh, Revelation 12.4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered or to devour her child as soon as it was born. Revelation 12 is a picture of the dragon Satan. And it says that Satan took his tail and drew a third part of the stars from heaven. This is a reference to the angels that Satan took with him when he fell, I believe. And so you have fallen angels that sinned by going after strange flesh, and you have fallen angels that rebelled with Satan against God. When Satan fell from heaven like lightning, it wasn't just him. He took angels of heaven with him, a third of the stars. And that's what's pictured here in Revelation 12. So you have fallen angels that are in chains of darkness, but you also have fallen angels which are Satan's lieutenants, his generals that fell with him, that do walk the earth, that do operate in the same vein that he operates today as the prince of the power of the air. Fallen angels. So they're associated with sexual sin and they're associated, I believe, with rebellion. And then finally... Uh, somebody, uh, Jim, if you'll read Daniel 10, verses 13 and 20. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which stood being one and twenty days, below Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the king of Persia, winning. Then said he, Knowest thou, therefore I come unto thee, and now I will return to flight with the prince of Persia, when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. Okay, thank you. That's, one, that's the angelic messenger talking to Daniel and explaining to him why he was delayed and what he was going forth from his visit with Daniel to do. And this angelic being describes his battle with the prince of Persia, the king of Persia. So this is not a reference to the literal, physical, human king of Persia at that time, but the prince the spiritual prince behind that king that was directing him. This is a fallen angel. Just as the Gabriel, or Michael was one of the princes who came to help this angel fight the prince of Persia. So we have a prince of Persia mentioned here, and then later in verse 20 we have the prince of Grecia. The battle that would happen when the prince of Greece would come. This prince, this, this fallen angel that was behind the scenes directing the affairs of the kingdom of Greece that would come and overthrow Persia. So what we see here is that behind earthly powers, behind worldly governments, are Satan's fallen angels that operate with him to try to bring about the complete and total demise of the human race. Now make no mistake, I'm not presenting a cosmic duality in which it's God versus the devil. 
good versus evil, and we're not quite sure about the outcome. That's not the paradigm given in Scriptures. You see, God on His throne is far above all of that. It's not good versus evil. Satan is on a short leash. In a way, he's God's messenger because he can only do what God allows him to do. He thinks otherwise, but the truth of the matter is, Satan is allowed to do what he does because ultimately all these things bring God glory when God redeems men and Satan fails in his attempt to bring about the total demise of the human race in this world. So these fallen angels may operate behind human governments, but ultimately they're controlled by God and human governments are going to fall right in line with God's plan and purpose for the end times. So these fallen angels, I believe, are more specifically today related to the, the political affairs of men. Fallen angels are behind these governments that want to annihilate Israel. They want to annihilate God's chosen people and prevent Messiah from setting up an earthly kingdom. These fallen angels are behind governments that pass laws to persecute the church because Satan wants to destroy the bride of Christ here on earth and silence her witness. And we see evidence of this here in the book of Daniel. So we have Satan's fallen angels. We also have what the Scriptures call demons. And Jesus dealt with these devils or demons in the New Testament. Some would argue that demons and fallen angels are the same. I don't believe that. I'm convicted otherwise. Again, this is not a hill I would die upon. I don't expect you to agree with me necessarily. I wouldn't dogmatically fight for it. This is a non-essential in Christian doctrine. In essentials, we need love. I mean, we need unity in the church. In non-essentials, we need liberty. And in all things, we need love. As one of the early Christians was noted to say. But my convictions concerning demons is that they are related to an event that took place in human history in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. And you're going to have to remember what we just discussed concerning angels that sinned and what Jude and Peter told us about that event and those ones that are in prison. Genesis chapter 6. I'm just going to read this here. And it came to pass, verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that is men, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Okay, so you've got two categories here. Sons of God saw the daughters of men. Okay, so sons of God and men are something different here. If we go to the book of Job, the angels are called the sons of God. Okay, so I believe these sons of God were angels that saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. That word giant there in the Hebrew is the word Nephilim, which is somehow related to the Hebrew verb that, to fall. And so Nephilim literally translates fallen ones. There were fallen ones 
in the earth in those days, that is the days of Noah, and also after that, after the days of Noah, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of this earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. So here we have a very interesting story. Some people would say that this is referring to the godly human line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. I don't see that because humans marrying humans don't produce giants. They don't produce fallen ones because all human beings after Adam are fallen. Um, Seth's line had many branches. Noah was, I believe, the ninth generation from Seth. Can you imagine us going back nine generations? I can't go back nine generations in my family. So there's tons of people going back nine generations that are related to me. So Seth's line didn't just go straight to Noah. There were tons of branches. And the idea that man didn't mingle when they were commanded to replenish the earth is foolishness. The idea that Cain's descendants and Seth's descendants coming together is something forbidden by God is foolishness because God commanded man to replenish the earth. And three or four generations out from Cain and Seth, I don't know if they would have even known who was descended from who. So that is one interpretation of these passages, but I don't believe that's the case here. Especially considering what we looked at in the book of Jude and Peter concerning angels that sinned. I believe that what Genesis is describing is angels or sons of God that left their first estate. They came to this earth, took on the form of human flesh, just like the angels that went into Sodom and Gomorrah took on the form of men, and what did the men of Sodom want to do with these angels? They wanted to rape them and have sex with them. Okay, so they took on the form of men. They came into earth and lustfully coveted the daughters of men and had sexual relationships with women. And this produced fallen ones, Nephilim, that were mighty, strong giants. It tells us that this happened in the days of Noah and it tells us in Genesis 6 that it happened after that. I believe um, when Joshua and the Israel went into the land of Egypt, I mean into the land of Israel to overtake the land, they were what were called the sons of Anak, the giants. In fact, when the spies went into the land in numbers, they were afraid. It says they saw the Nephilim there, the sons of Anak. And for that reason, they didn't want to go in there. They were afraid. So that word Nephilim appears again later on in the book of Numbers. These Nephilim were in the land of Canaan. Why do you think God wanted Israel to destroy the Canaanites completely from the face of the earth? 
Is it because they were more wicked necessarily than men from other nations? Than the men of Egypt? I don't believe so. I believe that the bloodlines of the Canaanites were polluted in the same way that the bloodlines that existed in Noah's day were polluted. And that's why God ordered Israel to rid the land of the Canaanites and they failed to do it. See, I think this has happened more than once in human history. Why does it say in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations? What does that mean? Noah wasn't a perfect man. We saw the foolishness he engaged in after the flood where he got drunk and didn't even know what was going on. And we don't really know what happened there with his son Ham and his grandson Canaan. It could be that his grandson went in there and did something wicked. Um, the curse that is given there is not given to Ham. Ham is the father of all the African peoples, but it's not Ham that's cursed. After that episode with Noah, by the way, it's Canaan. Canaan was a descendant of Ham and, and the father of the Canaanites. And in a sense, God pronounced that curse on them, prefiguring what was, would happen when Israel came into the land. But Noah was perfect in his generations. I believe what this means is that in his line, his line from Seth down through Enos and, 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 and the others and, 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 and uh, Enoch, and um, Lamech and, and Noah, and Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, this line was pure, it yet remained pure. It hadn't been corrupted or tainted by the intermingling of these fallen angels with the daughters of men. I think that's what's being referred to there. It makes sense to me. So you have these giants, these mighty men of old, these renowned Nephilim that were there in Noah's day, that were obviously there, the same thing had happened again in Canaan. Perhaps the reason why God wanted the Canaanites totally destroyed, Israel failed in that. You had these Nephilim walking the earth. I believe Goliath and the giants that are mentioned in David's time were Nephilim. So you had this offspring of a supernatural heavenly being with an earthly fallen human being produced a mighty fallen one, a man of renown, a giant. Okay? So you had the fusion of physical flesh with an eternal angelic spirit. What happens when that giant dies? The physical body dies. It doesn't have a spirit that's fallen and finite in the sense of man. It doesn't have a spirit that can be redeemed with God or that is judged on the same basis as man is. It has an eternal spirit that needs a body to inhabit. And so when the physical body of Goliath died, that spirit had to go somewhere. Now I find it interesting in the New Testament when Jesus deals with the demons... Think about the episode with the pigs. They begged Jesus not to cast them out of the man in the tombs without sending them into the pigs. Why is that? Why is that? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 concerning these unclean spirits or these demons. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, when an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. 
Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself several other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Demons are wicked spirits that need a place to dwell. Because I believe it goes back when their original dwelling place was in the bodies of these giants born to the wicked intermingling of angelic spirits with human beings. Now you might say that sounds hokey. And actually the book of Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphal work, it's not canonical scripture, talks about this. Uh, doesn't mean that makes it right, but I think that the Scriptures give testimony here that make it an interesting concept. So, I believe demons, unlike fallen angels, are disembodied spirits of the race of giants that have popped up from time to time on this earth. And they're bound to the earth. They're not, they're not able to have access to heaven like Satan is in the book of Job. Eventually, Satan's going to be kicked out in the tribulation period, and he's really going to be ticked off, and he's going to go after the nation of Israel. But Satan has access to heaven. Demons are bound to the earth. They're bound to a physical house in which they have to dwell. Josephus, I believe, the uh, uh, Jewish historian, talked about in the days of Jesus, or in that time period, there were actually bones of the giants on display in Jerusalem in museums for people to see. I find that very interesting. If you talk to people that are involved or have come out of satanic religion like in Africa or even in places where uh, spiritism and, and, and fooling around with familiar spirits and stuff exist, if you talk to people that have come out of that, we saw a woman delivered from evil spirits in Africa once. Ricky and I were a part of, of seeing that. And it was amazing to see her testimony and how God cleaned up her life and used her. After the time we were there, there was a house church meeting in her home. But she talked about how these wicked spirits would come to her in the night and rape her in her bed. Now that sounds crazy, but why would she lie about something like that? Maybe it was her imagination. Satanists. You know, some of their rituals that they practice involve women giving themselves over to Satan or these fallen angels, giving their bodies over for sexual rituals. Look at all the sexual rituals that took place in pagan temples in the old days. Think about the mythology out of Greece and Rome and some of the ancient uh, Persian and Babylonian mythology. People look at all these flood stories and stuff that exist in mythology around the world and they'll say, well, that proves that the Bible is just a myth because everybody else has flood stories. No, a rational mind would look at that and say, well, there's flood stories all around the world. Those point back to a common source. It makes, it's evidence for the biblical account. Think about Greek and Roman mythology. This movie that's coming out about Hercules. What was Hercules in Greek and Roman mythology? He was the offspring of the interaction between one of the gods... And one of the and, and, and a human, he was a demigod, half god, half human. Where did all this stuff come from in mythology? If it's not based in some sort of truth, mythology is always based in some truth. It's not just the random figment of someone's imagination. I find it interesting how you see this concept of these demigods in all of this mythology and traditions all over the world, and this idea that. 
evil spirits can interact with human beings. Some people say, well, God would never allow that. Well, who are we to say that God would never allow something? God allows what He allows for His glory. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean God wouldn't allow it. It says in the book of Isaiah that God created evil. Behold, I am God. There's no answer. I create light and darkness. I create evil. Some, some people have a problem with that. Well, I just can't understand it. Well, just because we can't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. God reveals these things to us so we can see and believe by faith. And I know the day is coming in heaven when He'll reveal the great mysteries. And we'll see that the purpose behind them and the fruits of them is far beyond anything we can imagine. But these demons need a place to dwell. Can a, can a Christian be... Possessed by a demon? No. Because there's nowhere for the demon to dwell. There's not an empty spirit dead. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us when we believe upon Christ. So the house is full. The only way demons or fallen angels or the devil can have power over the believer is if the believer willingly goes. Willingly follows. That's the only, re- the only way. You know... A, these, all this UFOs and space aliens and Bigfoot and all this stuff, I believe those are tricks of the devil. I believe those are fallen angels and demons sent to deceive the world, to get our minds off of the things of God. If we can start believing there's life on other planets and aliens and all this stuff, our thought turns away from God. God hasn't revealed those things to us. So this is all deception. Why is it that a born-again Christian has never been abducted, quote-unquote, abducted by an alien? Because there's no way it can happen unless that person willfully went with this quote-unquote alien, which I believe is demonic. So we have angels, seraphim, archangels, fallen angels, and demons. If you look at Satan's army and you look at God's army, it's interesting how they parallel one another. Everything Satan does, he tries to counterfeit what God does. That's why Antichrist will be a counterfeit Christ. He will be the incarnation of Satan, just like Jesus was the incarnation of God. He will counterfeit. God's army, the triune God, is at the top of all things. The faithful angels are His servants that go forth into the world to do His will, ministering spirits, watchers. And then the Christians indwelt with the Holy Spirit bound to the earth in their earthly lives are His ministers to go and preach the Gospel the ultimate weapon against the armies of darkness. Satan's got a threefold army as well. Satan at the top. His fallen angels, which are comparable or counterfeits of God's faithful angels. And then the demon spirits, which are counterfeits of Christ's church here on earth and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. So you have a threefold army on both sides. One is a counterfeit of the other. So that's just kind of an introduction to some of the supernatural beings mentioned in Scripture. We can't fully understand all these things. I do think it's interesting. And I do believe we need, we better not underestimate the powers of darkness. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principality. In wickedness in high places. We shouldn't take that lightly. We should cover our lives in prayer. Cover our preaching in prayer. I've made the mistake time and time again of being so OCD about getting out there and preaching. I've not even stopped to pray. And we're not only preaching and declaring God's news to the lost men and women who can be saved, 
But we're preaching in the presence of powers and principalities. That's why there's value in lifting up our voice even in a context where it's unlikely that any person would hear. The powers and principalities hear. And when we declare the gospel in their presence, we declare the victory that is to come. It was Martin Luther said that the best way to deal with the devil is to mock him with the preaching of the gospel. And he'll flee. Martin Luther was known for having some knockdown dragouts with the devil. He, they, people would hear him throwing the lamp, the, the lamp, oil lamp across the room and screaming and hollering. Kind of weird, but he felt the oppression of the devil and the temptation. But he said the best way to deal with that is to mock him with the preaching of the gospel because that's the victory. We don't need to fear these things because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But Satan has a role on this earth now. And we're going to see what that role is as we go into Revelation 5 and look at that seven-sealed scroll and what the Lamb does with that scroll. Because understanding those things is key to understanding what follows. So, we've got the four beasts. I've talked about some of the other beings, uh, supernatural beings, angelic and demonic beings in Scripture. Now we're here at uh, verse 10, uh, verse 9 through 11. When those beasts, those living creatures, those cherubim, give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, that is God, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. The idea that the redeemed will have their heavenly rewards to cast before the throne of God comes from this verse. These elders represent all of the redeemed. My desire for heavenly rewards isn't so that I can heap treasures upon myself, but I'd like to be able to cast something before the throne of God just like these elders do. I pray that our motive... And what did they say, verse 11? And pay attention. I believe this is one of the most important Scriptures in all of the Bible. I believe it reflects a truth that transcends even the Gospel. Because the Gospel is a demonstration of one demonstration of what is declared here. I believe verse 11 in Revelation chapter 4 is the crux, the fulcrum of all things. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou, number one, hast created all things. And number two, for Thy pleasure, they are and were created. The crux of all things. God is the Creator. He is the owner. And God created for the Creator's pleasure, not for the creature's pleasure. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8 very quickly. I think this is restated in a sense here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm sorry. Verse 5, I'll start. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. So the redemption of man through Jesus Christ is defined there in Ephesians 1 as being to the glory of God primarily and His grace. So above the gospel is the fact that God is the creator and owner of all things and that He created for His pleasure and His glory. The redemption of man through Christ is a way in which God is glorified. 
The problem with the church today is we've put the redemption of man and man's needs in salvation above the glory of God. We've got it backwards. You see, Laodicean churchianity says, O Lord, Thou hast created all things, and for My pleasure they are and were created. God didn't create us for, for us. He didn't create us to make our dreams come true. There's a church up here in Newton, Unifor Christian Church or something. They had a sign this week. It says, Reach for your dreams. Oh, roll, oh, what is the text message lingo? Roll my eyes or something like Shake my head. SMH. That church is one that uh, is very pro-homosexual, by the way. It's very, they had some kind of a Pride Week... Uh, had a, had a service there on Sunday. It was very sad. But our life, our being, our existence here is not for our pleasure. It's for God's. God does get pleasure by saving men from their sin. His holiness is vindicated. Just like the seraphim that came and touched Isaiah and cleansed him. His holiness is vindicated through the salvation of, of men. It's also vindicated through the judgment of sin. But we need to remember that God created for His pleasure. And when we do things that do not bring glory to God, even as born-again Christians, then we're not living as we were created to be. We're going against, in a sense, our first estate. Our first estate is to bring glory to God. The angels were created to glorify God. They left their first estate when they came down to daughters of men and messed up the natural order. We don't live as we were created to be when we don't live and bring God glory. It's all about the glory of God. The redemption of man is one element of God's glory. But may we not put the needs of men above the glory of God. You can have a church that grows and people quote-unquote come to Christ and it's all about making the message more palatable so that we can bring them in. But it's not a growth that comes from God because it's man-centered. It's about man's needs. I believe if we'll turn toward the glory of God, we may have a church that doesn't grow. We may preach the gospel that doesn't bring a single convert our entire lives, but yet we bring glory to God because we've been faithful to Him and we've sought His glory. If bringing people to Christ is the measure of a faithful prophet or a faithful preacher then you're going to have to cast out some of the most faithful of prophets in all of history. Jesus said none was greater amongst the Old Testament saints than John the Baptist. John the Baptist preaching didn't result in a revolution in Israel when many people were ready when Messiah came. When Messiah came, despite the preaching of John, they didn't recognize Him. And what happened to John? He lost his head in prison. We would look at that and say, in modern day church, well, he must have done something wrong. <coughs> if he wouldn't have offended people so much, maybe people would have come to Christ. Jesus said there was none greater than John in terms of the Old Testament saints. So God's view of things often is very different than our view of things. We need to remember that the main point of it all is God, His ownership, His authority, and He created for His pleasure. Well, why would God allow suffering? Why would God allow sin? Why would God allow evil? I just don't believe a loving God would put anybody in hell. God does what He does for His glory. And who are we to say we understand fully what brings God glory? 
who are we to say we understand anything that brings God glory outside of His revelation of Himself? We couldn't even know God unless He revealed Himself to us. And praise God, He did that in the Scriptures. Now, we must avoid the sin of replacing thy with my here in Revelation 4. God forgive us if we've ever replaced the single word thy with my. Satan is the chief of knowing how to twist one single word and mess with God's Scripture. Yea, hath God said to Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden, may we not fall prey by living and doing ministry for our pleasure. It ought to be about God and His pleasure. I'm going to wrap up here at the end of chapter 4. And I want you to look again at this verse. We've gone through verse 11, but look at the themes that are introduced here. Ownership. God's ownership of the earth is introduced here. He is the Creator. You have the church in heaven represented by the elders. You have the Old Testament saints in heaven represented by the elders. You have the cherubim. And we're going to see later we have a countless number of angels acknowledging publicly in the throne room of God His ownership. So everything that takes place after this in the book of Revelation reflects back on the theme of God's ownership. You see, man, or Satan may be the prince of the power of the air, Satan may be the ruler of this world. Man may build kingdoms, but at best, these are tenants. God is the landlord. God owns the property. A lot of times a tenant does something and the landlord lets him get away with it at a time, but eventually the landlord comes and asserts his authority and takes his property back and we have to evict tenants all the time. So I want you to... See as you go into chapter 5 and remember that God is the landlord. Man is just a tenant. Satan is just a tenant. And what do landlords do when the tenant becomes a liability? They evict the tenant. But what does a landlord have to be able to prove or show before he can evict a tenant? Show ownership. And that's usually done with what? A deed? A title deed? Just think about that as we get into chapter 5. Chapter 5, I'll just introduce real quickly here on this outline I gave you today. We're going to see two things in chapter 5. We're going to see a seven-sealed scroll and we're going to see a seven-horned lamb. I believe that understanding chapter 5 in Revelation the identity of the seven-sealed scroll and the role of the Lamb in securing this scroll is key to properly understanding the purpose and the continuity of everything that follows in the book. Chapter 5 are the glasses we need to look through when we read the rest of the book because it's all related. And it shows that chapter 6 all the way up until the Millennial Kingdom there at the end before the angel comes back to John's day. It's all, it's all continuous. You don't separate it. It all goes together. The seven-sealed scroll. Verse 1, I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. 
This scroll is in the right hand of the landlord. That word book means scroll. Obviously, they didn't have bound books back then. That's something that came later. A scroll was a book, but we think of a book in the sense of being bound, like what came as a result of the printing press. But this is a scroll, and it's said that it's written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, we have an example of this in Jeremiah 32, where Jeremiah is involved in a land transaction where he is, as the nearest kinsman, is given the rights to buy the land of his cousin. And in drawing up this transaction, there is a seal, and there's a scroll that is written on the inside and the outside, and it's sealed with a seal. And when you read that there in Jeremiah, you see that the inside actually contains the transaction, or the title deed, the transaction. The outside is what is written on by the witnesses. The wit- there's witnesses there. It says he wrote on the inside and then he rolled it up and then he took witnesses. The witnesses wrote on the outside. And then it was sealed. So the inside has the transaction or the proof of ownership. The outside has the, the, the writing of the witnesses who subscribe to what's on the inside. And then the seals are a guarantee of the integrity of the original transaction. And so, when this scroll here in chapter 5 is spoken of as written on both sides and sealed with seven seals, I think we can have an indication of what exactly that is by looking at the example given in Jeremiah, which was according to the laws and customs of Israel. Understanding this scroll and what the Lamb does with it is key. The scroll is in the right hand of God, and we'll see later that the Lamb comes and takes it. If we don't understand what this scroll is or what the Lamb is doing when He begins to open it, we can't understand the rest of the book. There is no sound eschatology. Eschatology is the theology of end times. There is no sound eschatology that does not properly grasp Revelation 5. There's not. There's just not. Well, I'll end there for today. Um... We're going to get into chapter 5 next week and there are some themes that are introduced here that are going to help us understand what's going on. Some things that are said about God. Some things that are said about the Lamb. And we're going to see that this scroll is related to God's program for the world. And then we want to look at redemption in the Old Testament. There was not only redemption for a wife, but redemption for a slave. There was also redemption for the land. And I want to look at the Old Testament program for land redemption. And as we see these things, we're going to see some interesting parallels to what is taking place in heaven. We need to remember that everything in the Old Testament law, the laws and the statutes and the judgments given to Israel were a picture of greater heavenly things. Just like the tabernacle was constructed after the pattern of God's throne room. Moses was told to construct it after the pattern he was giving, given. So we're going to see some very interesting things here in chapter 5. And then as we get into chapter 6, when the tribulation actually begins, we're going to move a little bit faster. So, I don't, sometimes I get off on these tangents, but I think Revelation gives us a doorway to discuss some of these other themes of Scripture that we may not have exegetically going through another book. So I think it's interesting to talk about heavenly beings, and we'll talk about Daniel's 70th week, and 
other things that are said about God, and we always want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. When we start trying to interpret it of its own accord and ignoring the immediate context and the entire context of Scripture, that's when we get in trouble. And so when I offer these convictions about what I believe is being taught here, I'm trying to make a case based on Scripture. And so I don't want to hold a position unless I can back it up with Scripture or unless that position agrees with the whole testimony of Scripture. Some of these things we may disagree about, and that's fine. I'd be happy to discuss them. I don't profess to know every detail in this book. I do have opinions based on my study of Scripture. The whole thing about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, that's what I believe based upon the testimony of Scripture. You may believe otherwise or think otherwise, and that's fine. I think you're wrong, and you may think I'm wrong, but that's fine. You know, those, I believe, are non-essentials in which we have liberty but we need to deal with one another in love when it comes to non-essentials. In the essentials, there is no room for liberty. The essentials are God is Creator. He creates for His pleasure. Man is sinful. He's fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Only Jesus Christ can save us from our sins because He was God. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He's coming again to judge the quick and the dead and to set up a kingdom. These things are essentials. But there are other things I think are interesting to investigate and there's a point in our lives as Christians, as Paul exhorted the Hebrews, that we need to get away from the, the milk of the Word. It's time to get off the milk, the, you know, the, 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 the simple, blunt truths of the Gospel. Let's get off the milk, let's get weaned, and let's start getting into the meat. Doctrine's important. It's not just the Gospel. It's about growth in the grace and holiness of the Lord. It's about our sanctification. It's about being aware of the times and seeing what's going on and being prepared for Christ and His coming. So at some point, we've got to move from the milk to the meat. Some Christians never do that. And it's sad. We can't be like that or be satisfied with that. That's why we should be studying the Scriptures. Not just in church, but at home with our families. Things like that. And ask God to give us understanding. And if we see that our theology is off base, Based on the testimony of Scripture, let's be humble people and let's change to match Scripture. I've had to do that. Anyway, let's pray over the meal. I hope you were encouraged or blessed this morning and I'm just uh, excited to see things happen fast in the book of Revelation as we go forward. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it was spoken in truth, Lord, and that you will continue to give us understanding. We can't possibly know all the details of the great mysteries, Lord, your plan and purpose for the ages apart from what you've revealed to us. Lord, we know the day is coming when you will reveal all the great mysteries and there'll be no more questions and we can fellowship with you for all of eternity just learning from you just as your disciples learned Jesus at your feet. We look forward to that day. Lord, help us to be Your witnesses here, Lord, Your army here on earth. Not to fight with swords and shields, Lord, but to use the Gospel, the sword of the Gospel, and to be faithful. And uh, to do what we were created to do, and that's to bring You pleasure. Lord, may we labor faithfully and occupy until You come, Jesus, to take us home. Lord, forgive us of our sins, we pray. Thank You that if any of us... uh, uh, fall into sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous Lord. Give us the strength by the Holy Spirit to live righteous, holy lives. Lord, bless the food You've provided for us today. We pray for those Christians around the world who are hungry, Lord, who are cold and without necessities. We pray You would comfort them in these moments. 
Lord, you would strengthen them and use them as a testimony. And Lord, if we're ever brought to that point, may we remain faithful. But in this moment, we thank you for the food. Bless the fellowship. And uh, may that as well bring glory to you. In Jesus' name.